Curious Society is a curious broadcast production funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee. A Curious Society was first broadcast on Newstalk 106 to 108 FM as part of their spring 2015 season of documentaries on Newstalk. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, step right up and come on in. Good on, I suppose one of one of my um, fondest memories is the uh, the Wall of Death that was operated by the Mesham family. Uh, set the world record for duration on the Wall of Death here in the RDS during Funderland. But um, being in the RDS, it's a wonderful place. It just stank of horses all the time. <laughs> They always had to associate going to the RDS to the spring show. We say going back in my youth. Then you came into the RDS and you saw machinery that was bigger and better than what we had at home, and cattle that were bigger and better than we had at home. When when I was a child, I don't think I quite realised that it was always the same place. I used to go to Funderland, Off the Rails, um, Young Scientist, all these different events. And how good was it? It was very funny. I could share many memories of the RDS with you. You probably have your own memories, either of the bumpers at Funderland or of an Irish-bred horse winning the Aga Kang Trophy at the Dublin Horse Show. But do you know that the RDS is more than a venue to hold events? I didn't. I had no idea that this is a charity and that the Royal Dublin Society has been operating since 1731 under a charter charged with helping the development of the arts, science, agriculture and industry. And it was instrumental in setting up some of our most iconic institutions, such as the Botanic Gardens and the National Library. This is its story, a meandering story, because it is vast and diverse. It is not a comprehensive story, and it tells just snippets of the history of the RDS. It is also not a story about the RDS as a venue and the events held within. This is the story of what lies behind the venue, what we don't see or think of when we think of the RDS. I'm going to start at the beginning, deep in the recesses of the RDS archive, which date back to the 1700s. The first person I meet is Natasha Serene, the collection librarian. So this is the door to the strong room. In the strong room we keep the physical archive of the RDS, it's paper archive. Most of the material that's kept on the shelves in here is 18th and 19th century, early 20th century material. There's a lot of these are actually part of the Thai collection. Um, they were given to us in the 1890s and they're a collection of classics and the oldest one we have inside in the strong room. That is Mary Kelleher. Now retired, she was a librarian in the RDS for over 40 years. Uh, it's a manuscript, 15th century manuscript. It's vellum and it has beautiful illuminated capitals. It's not quite the Book of Kells but it has all of these seven initials that are in blue and gold 
it was lactantius um, adversus gentes, yes, arguing against philosophers that anger is a necessary part of the character of God who must deliver just punishment against evildoers. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's the subject matter. Held in the archive are the minute books of all the meetings of the ODS. This is the raw material of the history of the society. As Mary went off to look for the first minute book, I got to look around. Let me describe where I was. In a series of small, dark, cold rooms, with floor-to-ceiling bookshelves crammed with publications and old leather-bound books. I felt I had stepped back in time. Among these treasures, Mary carefully lifted down from the shelf the minute book documenting the first ever meeting in the Dublin Society. She read out the first entry. It's that several gentlemen having agreed to meet in the philosophical rooms in Trinity College in order to promote improvements of all kinds. As Mary read, I was looking at the old copper plate writing. This had been written by hand in 1731 and records the setting up of the Dublin Society. There's something very special about looking at old handwriting. You can feel the touch of the person on the page. Now, the society was the Dublin Society for Improving Husbandry Manufactures and Other Useful Arts. So husbandry being an old word for agriculture. Uh, Now, they added science to the title some weeks later. So here were 14 formidable men, people such as Sir Thomas Monolo, the first medical man in the country to be knighted. Half of them were from the north and half from the south of Ireland. They met first in Trinity College and because six of them were MPs, they could use Parliament House in College Green, now the Bank of Ireland. Thomas Pryor was believed to have had the inspiration to set up the society and William Maple, a chemist, had the key to the Parliament House. And they were interesting people who, you know, decided that they wanted to do something to improve the conditions in the country. When I was standing with Mary in the archives, it felt like the first ever visit to a new date's home, as I'm desperately scanning their bookshelves to get some sense of the person. These shelves were crammed with a mind-boggling range of subjects, from drainage to travel. The Society's regulation stated that it should buy any book or journal which might contain useful discoveries in nature or art, which led to an interesting collection. The earliest catalogues of the library, uh, that was from 1735-36, the books they had were in English, French, German, Greek, um, Low Dutch, Latin and Spanish. And the subject matters were agriculture, arithmetic, bridge, civil law, flax, farm buildings, hemp, husbandry, hydraulics, hydrotechnics, machinery, metallurgy, mills, police, rural economy, statistics and silkworms. <laughs> it's, it's a huge, vast expanse of stuff. This collection here is the uh, travel collection. This is an historical collection and, and a very good one. Um, and a lot of these books would have come in from probably from members. The people that were in the society at that point were fairly well off and would have been pretty well travelled. 
uh, by Desert Ways to Baghdad, uh, Tigris and the Euphrates, uh, Highlands of Asiatic Turkey. We actually have a very good collection of books on polar exploration. They had they they sent out fishing surveys. Um, they went out and surveyed around the Blaskets and all that, but they were out up in the around the Arctic as well. And these are the books that we've collected on polar exploration. It's a very nice collection. These books here, these are examples of the scientific publications, or the between 1800 and 1984, the society produced all kinds of journals and scientific material of turf ashes as a manure kelp. How to build barns and how to... Uh, you know. Each of these journals were packed with notes and drawings, which were published by the Dublin Society and exchanged with other learned societies all over the world. But their focus was Ireland, and these detailed journals were almost like manuals, the modern-day how-to books. What's that one you pulled down with? No, that's one produced by this man, uh, Samuel Madden, who was the man who really got the society on, onto its feet. Samuel Madden offered the RDS an annual fund of £130 if they came up with an initial investment of £500. This was the first time the RDS had access to funds other than those raised by the members. The money was to be used as premiums, to encourage local enterprise and import substitution. They were a precursor to the idea of buying Irish. The premiums also recognised the role the arts could play in Ireland's development. The first art award in 1740 was given to Susan Drury for her drawing of the Giant's Causeway, which is now in the Ulster Museum. The benefactor, Samuel Madden, was an author and copies of his books are housed in the archives. This one is Reflections and Resolutions Proper for the Gentlemen of Ireland as to their conduct for the service of their country. They were very patriotic in a practical way. I could imagine back in the 1700s, these books being carefully packed up in their trunks and transported with their owners on ships, travelling the long journey across the Atlantic and all the possibilities that that might bring. This is an interesting one because the society, as well as collecting books, it also caused them to be published. So this one here is uh, published in 1780. The society set up drawing schools. Two of the pupils at the drawing schools put together this very fine book. It's a description of buildings in Dublin. Uh, including Leinster House. And James Hoban took this book with him to the United States and based his winning drawing for the White House on Leinster House. Looking around the archive, I could get a sense of what these men were like. They were wealthy, curious, hungry for knowledge and inventions and eager to share their discoveries. As a society, they had an objective, to improve Ireland, and they believed this could be best achieved by the dissemination of knowledge and new ideas. Kevin Bright is an historian who has written extensively on the history of the ODS. 
he has a greater understanding of what the society was like in the beginning. The next step on from the Renaissance, mm. it's the Enlightenment. So it's, it's people like Isaac Newton and the Royal Society in England. It's, it's from around about that time and it's a whole new age and a whole new way of looking at things. And that's, that's our Enlightenment. <laughs> it was unique in another way. The RDS did agriculture, science, industry and the arts. And you might say, why, that's terribly diffuse. You can't manage it all, but they did. A lot of institutions or bodies might have been uh, created in order to promote an ideology of some kind, either in religion or in politics. The RDS is not one of those. The Society's focus was on sharing knowledge. This is something I take for granted, considering I can access the world's libraries on my phone. But back in the 18th century, it was different. Universities and university education were not all that prevalent. You had Trinity here. But most universities, no matter where they were, and including Trinity, they were essentially, to begin with, seminaries, uh, training people for the Christian ministry. And that was, that was true all over Europe. It is worth reflecting on what Ireland was like in the 18th century, to put this story in the context of the time. Three years back, uh, you had a, a very disastrous famine. Just about ten years later, in the winter of 1740-41, you had what was uh, an Arctic winter. And it was a very small, isolated island in the northwest of Europe, poor, not heavily populated. There might have been two million people, something like that. No huge cities. Okay, you had Dublin. Perhaps it had 50,000 people. It was an administrative centre as well as a, a capital. And it was in that context. Governments 200 years ago were not like governments now. You didn't have huge structures of uh, educational systems, social welfare systems, uh, national health systems. None of those things existed. What, what governments did was they, they, they had armies and navies to defend the country or to repress the citizens or whatever. Um, and, of course, they had a taxation system to pay for everything. This was the political and social landscape that the Dublin Society began in. It operated as a society, that is, an organisation made up of members with a shared purpose. It did not have any formal legal structure, but that too evolved. Prior, who was the driving force behind the foundation of the society, he died in the early 1750s. But before he died, he was thinking about the, the continuity of the society he'd, he'd founded. He wanted to go on beyond him. And the only way to do that in those times was to get a royal charter. Nowadays, people would go out and uh, form a limited company. That was what happened in this case, 1749, 1750. They got a royal charter from George II, who was the monarch at, at the time. Almost 300 years on, the RDS hasn't changed much in its structure. It is still a society governed by its members, although now they are in excess of 3,000. It is these members who are integral to the continued success and development of the Foundation programme, and all of them work on a voluntary basis. One unique factor, one which probably explains the longevity of the RDS, is the combination of voluntary and professional management. 
Tony Scott is past president, and I met him in the Thomas Pryor rooms in the Members Club, part of the ODS which was designed by architect Lucius O'Callaghan in the 1920s. And if you read the history of the early days, it's interesting to see what they used to encourage things like flax growing and breeding of cattle and what have you. They used to give what are called premiums. Uh, I suppose today we'd call them research grants. And there were reasonable amounts of monies in those days uh, for, for doing things. And the RDS started giving out premiums. I suppose it's the kind of thing that uh, Science Foundation Ireland might do today or the government might do or Enterprise Ireland might do. But we were doing it 250 years ago. So it's fascinating to see, you know, where we started. But it started so many things, like the Botanic Gardens. But why did the ODS set up the Botanic Gardens? So there was an interest developing in the 18th century in the science of botany. There was also an interest developing in uh, gardening and, uh, and, and the pleasures of gardening, I suppose. So the ODS, uh, for all those reasons, um, got itself involved in um, the creation of, of a botanic garden. They uh, bought a plot of land in Glasnevin. It's in a nice location and a river runs through it. The, some of the things that they did in connection with it, the ODS were responsible for the, uh, the Turner greenhouses, which are kind of almost an iconic symbol of the, the gardens. They were commissioned by the ODS in the 1840s. But it wasn't just the Botanic Gardens that the ODS members set up. They also set up institutions such as the National College of Art and Design, the National Museum, the Natural History Museum, the National Gallery, the National Library of Ireland, and the Veterinary Medicine College. These institutions were established in part by funds allocated by the government to the ODS. At the time, it was not seen to be the role of the government to set up such institutions. The function of the government began to change in the 19th century, which had an impact on the ODS. It was only as you get into the early 19th century that you see government involvement in other aspects of um, a nation's life. But of course, as government began to interest itself in education and, and so on, it began to want to control what it was paying for. And it wasn't too happy with the idea of simply supporting um, an independent institution like the RDS, which fitted in not terribly neatly anywhere, but it was independent. And uh, the government liked that less and less. Um, also, the government was paying uh, an increasingly large share of the cost, even of what the society had founded and was running. And so ultimately the government decided uh, they must take control themselves. In 1877, the British government of the time had uh, passed an act, the Dublin Science and Art Museum Act, uh, and had taken over all of the uh, core institutions of the RDS at that time, had nationalised them, in other words. The ODS may have been responsible for setting up what are now seen as Ireland's iconic institutions, but it was also very much part of the fabric of the city. We know it now for its home in Balls Bridge, but that is not where it started. In the late 1750s, they bought a house in Grafton Street, 
nearly opposite, I think, the Provost House and Trinity College. They also developed at the same time a little complex of, of uh, activities around Fleet Street and Poolbeg Street, including the making of agricultural instruments. They had a little factory making uh, shovels and spades and wheelbarrows and ploughs and <laughs> all sorts of odds and ends that, that a farmer might uh, want to buy. In the late 1790s, they, they moved their headquarters to what's now Hawkins House. So the RDS were there uh, by the Liffey from 1800 up to 1818. In the meanwhile, in 1814, uh, they had an opportunity to buy Leinster House, of all things. <laughs> and they took it, and they made a lease agreement with the Duke of Leinster. They paid the money off over a period of 25 years, so they owned Leinster House outright. This enabled them to expand and develop exhibition space, the School of Art and the Library. They were there from 1815 until 1924. After the War of Independence, the Provisional Government of Ireland asked for rooms in Leinster House, and they were granted. They remained in Leinster House, cheek by jowl with the government, having constant rows with the Board of Works, the Office of Public Works, as we call them now, and the Department of Arts and Science, and probably later on with the Department of Agriculture and Technical Instruction, and rows over uh, noisy exhibitions, horse shows, dust, people, uh, which the civil servants didn't like too much. Also, general elbow room, I suppose, Leicester House was getting congested, but the RDS was still trying to run a horse show at the front and the back. <laughs> the, um, for, for example, the original uh, water jump at Dublin Horse Show was more or less water down the steps of the National Library. By 1924, the, the, the government offered money to the RDS to remove itself entirely from Leinster House and to take all its activities out to Balls Bridge. Now they already had the premises in Balls Bridge since 1880 and they had acquired them uh, to develop for uh, agricultural shows. And in the 1890s uh, the, the RDS built a section, I think it was about a half a mile of uh, railway and uh, a platform, uh, just an extension of what I think at that time was the Great Southern Railway, uh, so that they could they could bring livestock to the shows and, and horses. <laughs> but if they were coming from from uh, the far end of the country by rail, they they could get as far as the back of the RDS premises. Um, the last part of the journey being on the RDS's own section of railway track, <laughs> which was there until 1970-something, 1971, I think. The RDS is a living body, so its events, such as the Dublin Horse Show, have continued to grow. First set up in 1868, it is now Ireland's largest equestrian event. In 1926, it held its first international horse show. Currently, its prize pool for international show jumping is the largest in the world. Today, thousands come to the horse show as spectators, and those competing range from the very young to the very elite. 
Yeah, yeah we ride ponies and it's our first ever time to come to Dublin and we hope she wins. She's, she's plotted nicely and uh, she is, we wash her, it took a long time to wash her because she does lots of poos. Just under four minutes, riders, please. Uh, Kent Farrington, I'm from Florida. You know, I think you want to do well. I don't know if I'd say nervous. I'd say more anxious to compete. I think this is one of the, you know, one of the classic shows of, uh, of show jumping. I think it's one of the best shows in the world. They get a great crowd here. I think the ground is fantastic. And, uh, you know, it's a really good sport. It's a win for the United States of America, Kent Farrington and Blue Angel. The Dublin Horse Show is part of the ORDS Foundation programme. Joanna Quinn is the Foundation Director. In 2010, the ORDS set about a strategic plan to look at increasing the effectiveness of its Foundation programme. A Foundation board was established to provide focus for developing and evaluating the Foundation programme. The Foundation Programme is basically 15 projects with an aim of being a catalyst to ensure coming generations can fulfil their potential. Um, and we basically undertake these projects with the support of our members and our partners. Well, I'm a historian by training. I worked for an organisation that was a spin-out from the RDS, the Crafts Council of Ireland. It was set up by the RDS in the 1970s and had its home here for five years, so I was very aware of the history of the RDS. You have to be very aware of the history of an organisation like this and because it does, it colours everything it does in a lot of ways. And it's both a challenge and a huge opportunity for an organisation. Um, because you can be completely overshadowed or overwhelmed by your history. I mean, imagine trying to come up with projects as large as the National Museum or the National Library. How do you do that? The, project, the projects have changed a lot over time. Some of them have been going a long time um, and other ones would have only started in the last year. The Student Art Awards would have started as the Taylor Art Award um, in the 1860s. It was the um, result of a bequest from a man called Captain Taylor and it was set up to, to do very much what it does today, which is to start the careers of emerging uh, professional artists. When you look back at the Taylor Art Award, it reads like a who's who of artists in Ireland. Walter Osborne, Sir William Orpen, Louis Labrocchi, Dorothy Cross, to name but a few. James Hanley was awarded the prize in 1991. I met James in his art studio, in an attic over a barber's shop, in the heart of Dublin City. But you get really obsessive about stuff, you know. Uh, one of the problems with making art is uh, is signing off and stuff. It gets harder sometimes as you get older. You know, it's, it's a there's a touch of madness. Sort of. Now they'd be pleased, they would be pleased in the RDS to know that 30 years after I left school and did the art exam, I, I'm on the paper this year. I suppose when I, I won the award in 1991 and I had just graduated, I had no idea that I could make a living from it or it would be a, a sustainable activity. So when I graduated, two very, very good things happened in my final year 
in NCADI. I put in a painting, my first exhibited painting is the RHA, and I won an award. But the second thing was uh, I won the Taylor Art Award, huge boost. It was 1,500 punt, and I was, I was off, as it were, you know. And I think that it made a big difference uh, uh, to my family and endorsement to my parents and just, oh, he's okay, it's all right what he did. And so it was almost like you got an imprimatur, you know, particularly when there's a sense of history. I mean, I love history and connection, and I think as a painter, that's what you do. You connect to the past. To get an award then, which was rooted in the past and had helped many people, and you were, I mean, I'm not trying to send pomps about it, but that you might be in a lineage, you know, that, you, that oh, wow, I got it this year, and look who got it, the, you know. It's, it just gives you a great sense of uh, your place, you know, albeit uh, delicate at that time, because you have to start off and you have to work and work and work and keep going, and you build up over years. And I suppose I've come full circle in the sense that, like I was joking, I was on the art leaving it this year, ten years after I won the Taylor Award, I was elected a full member of the RHA, and the RHA had always have a close connection with the RDS. And now, subsequently, I'm, as an RHA member, I'm on the board of the National Gallery, who also have a connection. You know, so it's like I've become embedded in the the, the culture of all the institutions. And you can make criticisms of the world, I suppose, through your art. You can be involved, or you can be periphery. It doesn't really matter, but. It's actually quite nice to be in the centre of things and, and, and be involved with organisations. And so the RDS and the RHA were there, incredibly powerful support systems within society. And people sometimes forget because they see the word royal and the charter and think they're old fuddy-duddy institutions, but they're not, and they've survived. So one of the interesting things about the RDS is that it continues to develop. And it is this, along with its legacy, that makes it formidable. One example of its continued legacy is the Boyle Medal. Back in the archives, I met with Claire Mulhall, Foundation and Membership Development Manager. This is the Boyle Medal for Scientific Excellence. Uh, the Boyle Medal is Ireland's premier award for science in Ireland. Um, it's been awarded since 1899, and there have been to date 39 recipients, probably one of the longest awards that's in the country. A lot of Irish people doing huge things uh, both in the country and abroad and abroad and this award seeks to recognise them um, and seeks to value them. So 1899 has been going a long time um, and still going strong. The RDS has survived and it has evolved. It is still a society of members working towards the same ideals. There are five standing committees whose remit is to pursue excellence in their areas. These committees are in turn overseen by the Council, the governing body of the society. It has a president with overall responsibility. The RDS is also a commercial entity, and on the commercial side there is a CEO and 65 paid staff that deliver its programmes and manage its commercial activities. Michael Duffy has been the CEO for the last 10 years. His role is to create a stable and financially viable structure in order to generate income for its foundation programme. Commercial activities are the key funding um, component behind our foundation activities. And if you recall that the society was established to undertake uh, public good activities in agriculture, arts, industry and science. And the principal way the society has funded that has been through its commercial activities. Uh, we had over 70 acres at one time in Ballsbridge, but gradually land was sold off to meet the funding needs of the society. And up to the 1990s, there had been quite a, a fluctuating situation in relation to the financial stability of the society. The society took the decision that we would retain 
ownership of the 40 acres that we had, we would not sell off any more land and we would find ways of in, in developing commercial activities that would fund the needs of the society. So it was a very active period then. You saw the development of the Four Seasons where uh, we rented the ground on a long-term basis for the hotel and that's an important income stream to us. Um, we then subsequently uh, built offices to offices in the Simmons Court Road and that generates a very important income stream. Uh, we've invested heavily in the event centre aspect of the RDS. We do over 400 plus events. One of the uh, really satisfactory developments over the last few years has been our partnership with Leinster Rugby um, where they play the, most of their games here, the Rabo Director, their European games here and it's very much seen as the home of Leinster Rugby. Matt Dempsey is the current president of the RDS and his role is to ensure that the original charter and foundation objectives are upheld. It's the whole history of it has given it some kind of tradition for excellence which has waxed and waned, to put it at its mildest, down through the years. So the society has come through very tough times financially, uh, has picked itself up and put in a structure that has worked uh, and has got back into the game, as it were. So here you are with a wedge of property that probably makes us the largest private uh, landowners in the city of Dublin. But of course we've aspirations to be much more than a venue. Uh, and it's how you begin to make an impact again then in the arts, equestrianism, agriculture, science, uh, in those areas and industry. Uh, and I think we've been beginning to again carve out a sensible place for us in Irish society. The strength, I suppose, of it has been that the voluntary officers have never taken any money, uh, even expenses, for participating in the work of the society, that they are prepared to actually think seriously uh, that if they become involved, how can they contribute uh, towards the development of the society's aims, which are obviously very broad to contribute to the cultural and economic development of Ireland. So the ambit is very clear uh, it's how that gets translated then into positive action, I think, uh, is why, where we are at the moment. Tony Scott, who set up the Young Scientist competition back in 1963, which has had its home in the RDS since it began, considers one of the most important functions of the RDS is its involvement in science education in Ireland. Because, you know, there's a great demand in this country to get people interested in science and engineering. Uh, a lot of industries are saying we can't get enough people with science and engineering backgrounds. And the question is, how do you get people interested in science? Science, for some people, is considered nerdy. For others, it's, considering, it's considered to be hard. So how do you encourage them? So our idea was, well, the way to encourage them is to use the old Jesuitical idea, catch them young and you have them for life. So we decided to work with primary science. And, and you might have heard there's a thing called STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering and mathematics. And so we decided, could we implement the ideas of that, the STEM program at primary science? And the way we decided to do it was to set up sort of a pilot program where we would help to train uh, some primary teachers how to, how to approach science for young people. What we call inquiry-based, rather than just reading a book and sit down and eat your porridge, this is the way it is. Get children to explore. Rather than give them the answer, let them find out the answer. 
So uh, what was different about the STEM pro uh, project was it was uh, teacher-driven. So teachers themselves developed a programme that they then delivered to other teachers. The society believes inherently in, cu in fostering curiosity. Um, science, like any other um, subject, you know, you, when you see children engage with it, they themselves don't know it's science. They are totally passionate about it. They're the most natural scientists in the world because they continuously ask the question, why? Um, so it's about fostering that and encouraging that in a way that doesn't put rote learning on it, in a way that the teacher themselves feels comfortable in it, w with it, and in a way that the children can in some ways direct their own learning. There's still a curriculum to be done. There's still a course uh, content to be covered. But you can do it in a more... Um, culturally curious way. I mean, over the last 300 years, the society has played a huge role in education in Ireland, and specifically science education. We were the first to do public lectures, and we were the first to send public lectures around the country. That was back in the 1800s. So interestingly, and very excitingly, um, Science Foundation Ireland um, are going to come on board with us this year to provide additional funds to match the funds that the ODS is putting in place to bring it to that whole school level. That'll be continuously evaluated so that at the end of the piece we'll have um, a suite of recommendations that we'll be able to have a conversation with the Department of Education, the Teaching Council and other relevant bodies who are in this space um, and may be open to looking at practices and models of, of approach and uh, making changes. It is interesting how the ODS looks to the future as well as celebrating its traditions. You can see that very much in its crafts programme. The ODS National Craft Competition began in 1963 and is now one of Europe's leading independently adjudicated craft competitions. Ima Conyard is known for her timepieces and sculptural jewellery. She won the ODS Award for Excellence in 2013 and the Category Award in 2014. This is in, um in the RDS in 2013, I make a bespoke case for it. So the dial is 22 carat and then around the outside is 18 and the chain is silver. Watches are very, very challenging to make and you're working to very fine tolerances and the quality of the finish has to be just perfect, which I think has, made, has pushed me in every aspect of my making process. Emer is also the manager of the Crafts Council of Ireland's Jewellery and Goldsmithing Skills and Design course in Kilkenny. As both a craftsperson and a teacher, she sees the value of the awards for the crafts industry. You know, when you look at the awards now today, they had over 400 applications and only about 80 of those get into the exhibition and then a portion of those win awards. Even just to get into that exhibition is an achievement because the standard... The standard of the work that's in the exhibition is incredibly high. I was even just talking to one of my students yesterday who just completed a, a silversmithing piece. And I said, you have to put this into the RDS. And he was like, really? You know, really? Is it good enough to go into the, to go into, go into the RDS Design and Craft Awards? And I said, yeah, absolutely. He's a young student. You know, they hold the, the RDS Awards in, in high esteem as well. The RDS considers bursary and awards crucial in the development of the artist's career. In 2003, it set up the Music Bursary Award, currently worth 15,000, making one of the largest single bursaries on offer to a young musician in Europe. I'm sure it's very nice to win an award, but does it really matter to your career? Redmond O'Toole was the first winner of the award. Redmond plays the Brahms guitar, also known as the cello guitar, and is one of Ireland's leading classical guitarists. So, 
This is um, what well, is it? The best guitar I have. I have two of these eight string guitars, and then I mean, essentially, it's like a six string in the middle, and then I have a lower bass string. But um, I have to think back about, you know, the bursary itself, you know, I never thought for a second I'd win it. I never thought I did give it to a guitarist, not a million years, especially not one like me. I was kind of more punk rock days and I had my spiky blonde hair and everything and I had piercings everywhere, you know, and I was not really the norm and, and I was playing the guitar in this funny position and, you know, embarrassed to say I started crying when I realised actually what <laughs> Uh, you know, also because I've, I've been coming kind of runner-up in so many things all the way through my musical career. And I never expected to win anything, so winning it was such a such a shock. And then it just worked out perfectly because I had huge publicity from that. I'd already got these concerts organised. I was easily, easily able to add a couple more concerts onto that now because people knew who I was. And people attended the concerts because they'd now heard about this guy, you know. Um, supposed to be the next big thing so of course they come along right so so it was absolutely the beginning of of um yeah it was the beginning of you know getting paid to play so I, I can't there is no other event that is as important in it in my career I mean what it led on to then obviously it gave me money to continue studying and I think unlike a lot of the other people I went for a totally informal education on the way I didn't go on and, and uh, study somewhere you know for a year solid or something like that I used the money uh, firstly to go to Brazil to study with Paul Galbraith who was the inventor of the eight string guitar that I play so you know but that didn't use up all the money so I was able to then study with Oscar Gilia you know really arguably the best guitar teacher in the world or at least he has had so many great students and um, for the next four years I went to Academy of Kijana in Siena in Italy. The confidence of winning it was probably even more important. To be able to go to the class in, in, in Siena and say, you know, I've won a big competition in, in Ireland was it was a feeling of belonging to that because no one from Ireland had ever gone to the Academy of Kijana as guitarist before. So yeah, I mean it really is it's a starting point in, in my uh, in my career for sure. The ODS may have been responsible for helping to start the careers of many artists and musicians in Ireland. As much as it is about supporting others, it has also been about thinking ahead about what might be needed for the future. You may recall back in the archives the shelves of journals that encourage farmers and manufacturers to think beyond what was happening at the time and create new opportunities and developments for the future. This forward thinking continues today. For actually not just looking at giving miscellaneous grants uh, to various projects, but is there something we should really get involved in uh, and refine and develop areas of work uh, that need to be done in the country, uh, identify where there's a gap, and then see how that ca gap can be filled, and putting in place a structure that can deliver those projects either by ourselves or more usually in cooperation with other people with similar aims. This has been done in their science education programme. The Society also was the first body to develop the forestry industry in Ireland. Michael Kerry is a member of the Agricultural Section of the Council. He is also author of the book If Trees Could Talk, a history of trees in Wicklow over the last four centuries. I met Michael in Rusborough Estate in Wicklow. We have the end result here right in front of us because we have some very ancient 270-year-old lime trees here 
and also when we look across there you can see some really fine beach as well. So they're old trees now by Irish standards. The reason why the ODS became involved in planting trees was because there was very few woodlands in Ireland in the beginning of the 18th century, due in part to the wood being used for shipbuilding. It was the first time anywhere in the world that premiums were granted for planting trees. The scheme ran from 1741 to 1810, during which time the ODS funded the planting of 55 million trees around Ireland. Though in today's terms that is not huge. But it did have an impact. Because there's no doubt as you drive around the countries, you see lots of examples of trees, old trees that were clearly planted under this scheme. But they are decaying now. If we walk up closely to this tree here, uh, you can see that it's almost hollow, right, hollow right into the centre. And the timber is, is breaking, it's quite easy to break away. my hand now right in in the centre of the tree almost and it's empty in there so the tree is rotting from the inside out and all we need is really a very strong gale to take this tree down um, after what 270 years it's been here so these beautiful old trees planted with the help of the ODS are coming to the end of their days the ODS has continued to look ahead to recognise the value of forestry in Ireland and wants to encourage best practice in this area. The ODS Forest Service Forestry Awards, established in 1987, recognise and reward farmers and woodland owners who are employing the principles of climate-smart agriculture on their properties, including sound commercial management, environmental protection and biodiversity. This is about encouraging the long-term environmental sustainability of the Irish forestry sector. The RDS awards are coming at a very good time in terms of trying to encourage good forest management in those areas. Justin Good, the 2014 Farm Forestry winner, is testament to the value of the award. It is continuous cover ethos I have. It'll always be a forest. There's massive life in it. The, the, the return of the pine marten, the red squirrel, the foxes all play a part in, and, and, and the honeybee, which is essential uh, in behind it all. Uh, it's life. It, it's booming, booming with life and colour. And it's, I refer to it as a little bit of Canada in Cavan. And it's just awesome. The ODS Awards acknowledge both the professional and the amateur such as the professional forester and the allotment grower being equally commended. Mary Redmond is a member of the Agricultural and Rural Affairs Committee and she is one of the allotment judges. And the first one, which is a certificate of merit uh, to Stilorbe Community Gardens in Bridget's Parish uh, in Stilorbe here in County Dublin. I met Mary as she was judging the winning community allotment at St Bridget's National School in Stilorgan. So what I'm looking for are the range of activities that are here, the range of crops. I have nasturtiums there, and I've had carrots, and onions, and garlic. I like growing, you get to plant stuff, and I love when they actually, you know, grow up and into flowers and vegetables. Um, I'm going to weed my bed. It's quite weedy after the summer. 
and as well as the overall garden that's here cultivating plants you can see uh, areas for birds for animals we've seen the hens and so on so there's a huge amount packed into a very small area that rich diversity reminds me of the ordias when you look behind the venue it has achieved so much steeped in history it celebrates curiosity and creativity and it has an ethos of shared knowledge and forward thinking that still resonates today. I think one's in danger of sort of sounding sanctimonious, but the, but the primary aim is not actually the, the promotion of the RDS, but what is needed and how can that need be identified and satisfied. I think it's one of the few places I've encountered, and I'm old now, and so I'm a man of my time. I just feel that the RDS was one of the very few institutions I ever came across that wasn't a religious institution. It wasn't a political institution. And all of those things made it sort of remarkable because it was in Ireland and everything seemed to have to do with politics and religion. That it was one aspect of the RDS that, that always appealed to me. The other was it's almost three centuries old. And in Irish terms, that's very old. It really is. There are very few things that are older than the RDS. Trinity College is. The major Christian denominations are. The government is not. The state is not. History and a study of history forces you to think, how will this look in 500 years' time? In other words, you have to kind of project yourself into Star Trek and, and consider how people looking back will see things. And I think they will look quite favourably at the RDS. I think they would say, yes, it was one of the institutions that grasped the underlying philosophy of life on earth <laughs> without too much prompting. Human nature doesn't change. Basically, we are all interested in the same things. Mostly we want a quiet life. We want to be able to raise our families. We want a little bit of comfort, perhaps, a bit of fun now and again. We're not that interested in, in uh, wars and rebellions. And yet, when you read history, that seems to be what it's all about. So ultimately, what is the RDS all about? It's, it's, it's about uh, development, which would be economic development and personal development even. A Curious Society is a curious broadcast production funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Narration by Patricia Baker... Sound mix and edit by Jerry Horn, Contact Studio. A Curious Society was first broadcast on Newstalk 106 to 108 FM as part of their spring 2015 season of documentaries on Newstalk.